it's who I am. It's who I am. Thank you, Jesus Christ. I am loved of the Father. Well, good morning. Well, let's see if you're awake. Good morning. Hey, I'm glad to see you're here. Awesome. My name is Bill Walker, and it is my great pleasure to be able to pastor here at Grace Church. And I'm really excited you're here this morning. My prayer has been that by the end of our time together this morning, that you would be glad that you were here too. We shall see, and I will ask when we're done with our time this morning. We are continuing on in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5 as we work on the Sermon of the Mount together. Please take your Bibles. Join me today in Matthew chapter 5 as we continue to consider the greatest message ever preached by the greatest person who ever lived, Jesus Christ. We're going to focus our attention today uh, in the body of the message, uh, in the instructions passage, um, to kind of get context. And I think this is going to be needful throughout our series. In order to get context, I want to, um, if you will, give a little preamble. And I hope to do this kind of every time we get together. It's not very long, but anytime you have a, a verse of Scripture and you take it out of its context, the potential is it becomes a pretext. And I don't want that to be the case. I want to make sure that we understand the instructions that Jesus is giving us here. And so, with what we're going to look at today, Jesus is continuing to clarify through the instructions he's giving us what it means to be salt and what it means to be light in the lives of broken and hurting people. Today, as it was then, people live very damaged lives, bland, tasteless lives, unpalatable lives of trying to find satisfaction through selfishness and sin. People are grasping and, and, and groping all around in the dark trying to find something, anything that will fill the satisfaction of the emptiness that they feel. Maybe I'm talking about you this morning. If this is how you feel today, I am so glad you are here. Continue to walk with us, and you will find the ultimate answer. And his name is none other than Jesus Christ. It is into such lives that we are called to be salt. We are called to be light, revealing through our lives a different way to live. The Jesus way, the good life. The good life is a life of following Jesus in loving obedience, and doing good out of a heart that is indeed becoming good in him. And as we do this, and people see him in us, and they find him through us, the Father is glorified. And that, my friends, is why we are here, to the glory of God. So I just want to be careful to keep the context because we're talking about very needful personal things and we can make the, the things we're talking about all about us. And the reality is it is about our lives, but it's not just about our lives. It's about glorifying God and reaching other people. So what is our good glorifies the Father and is to the gladness of those who find Jesus through us. So that's the context of why these instructions are being given. So with that in mind, today we are going to look at perhaps one of the more difficult things Jesus ever had to say as we talk about a growing life of fidelity becoming free from sexual lust and disgust. Jesus, Matthew chapter 5. He goes on to say this, beginning in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, 
you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. And so you have also heard it said that whoever divorces his wife, let them give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I don't know about you, but I feel the need to pray right about now. Let's go before uh, our Father. (sighs) Father, help us to keep our attention focused on you. Help us to seek from our heart of hearts to please you. Help us to keep our focus on Jesus, the one who sacrificed himself to deal with the very issues we wrestle with every day. Lord, thank you for the Holy Spirit who fills us and empowers us to live lives that can ultimately honor you and honor Christ. Help us as we walk through some very dense, difficult material together, I pray. In Jesus' name, and the people of God said, amen, amen. So what Jesus is continuing to do in this portion of Scripture is he is continuing to draw a sharp contrast between the cultural understanding and the way he has called his followers to live their lives. That contrast is, you have always heard that it was said, this is the cultural reality, but I now say to you, this is how you are meant to follow me. Now, as you can see from the content that we have here today, Uh, we're going to have a bit of an adult discussion. Uh, The content of the material, I would say, if you were to rate it, would be probably close to R. So if there's some young people here that you feel uncomfortable having this material discussed with, I want to encourage you to use this time to kind of make your way out with them, put them in the programming, that'd be awesome. But if you're okay, I'm okay. It's your responsibility as a parent to decide what's best for your children. So just with that little uh, disclaimer, uh, let's get underway. So, Jesus is doing exactly like he did last week. He is looking at the command. And this is the common understanding within the culture of his day. He said this, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. Now, uh, uh, this is one of the big ten, one of the ten commandments. You will find the ten commandments in Exodus chapter 20. They were written by the finger of God on tablets of stone. So, these are very important to the heart of God. He did not record anything there that was unnecessary, but what is best for his people. This is the seventh of the Ten Commandments, and the seventh commandment indeed says, you shall not commit adultery. Now, adultery in context is simply this. It is when a married man or a married woman seeks sexual satisfaction outside of the marriage. That is what adultery is. Now, in the life of Israel, in the people group of the Jews, to do so, to seek sexual satisfaction outside of the bonds of marriage was a grievous thing. And God took it very, very seriously. Because it is said in Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, 
both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. That's pretty serious. That's like the ultimate thing. And the preferred way that they would do that was by stoning them to death, and the heap of stones would remain there as a reminder of what God felt about this thing called adultery. And so this is the issue of Jesus' day. This was the problem that was going on in his culture. You see, the young people in Jesus' day were married by the time they were 13, 14, 15. So they all got married really, really young. And so if somebody wasn't satisfied with the relationship they had, then the result was they would commit adultery. And so Jesus was speaking into the simple reality of the culture of that day. There weren't a lot of singles because most of them were married very early on. So adultery was the problem of the day. Uh, In our culture today, that's not such a big deal, though it is still a big deal. But in our day, uh, people don't get married young and then commit adultery. What happens is people get married older, and before they get married, they live together, sleep together, and hang out together. That's more the reality of our day and age. Uh, The Bible actually refers to that as well. Uh, under the topic of something called fornication. Now, fornication uh, is is the Greek word pornea, pornea. It's the word we get pornography from. Pornea is kind of the general junk drawer holder for all forms of sexual immorality. How many have a junk drawer in their home? Yeah, you just throw everything in there, don't you? It is where you just toss all the junk and slam it shut to get it out of sight. Well, pornea, or fornication, is kind of the general junk drawer uh, definition for all unlawful sexual relations. It's actually found uh, largely in Leviticus chapter 18, and some of the things enumerated there are things like incest, pedophilia, multiple partners, Uh, it, it even includes child sacrifice in there, just to give you an idea how he groups these things. Uh, homosexuality is there, as well as bestiality. All of these um, illicit, unlawful forms of sexual fulfillment are listed there, and this is the price people would pay. It says in verse 29 of chapter 18 of Leviticus, for everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So ostracizing people is how you dealt with people who did these acts within the nation of Israel. So again, the day in which Jesus was speaking, the big deal was ultimately adultery. Now, people knew exactly what God intended. It was so clearly given in the law. They didn't doubt God's boundaries. The boundaries God gave was simply this, one man one woman, and the holy bonds of matrimony or a covenant relationship for life. This was what they knew. This is what they understood. And anything outside of that was considered to be adultery for those who were married. So they didn't doubt what God asked, what God commanded. Now, they knew clearly within the context of their day what God had said. We live in a day and age where people really don't know anything. You just do whatever seems appropriate, and everybody's okay. We have no-fault everything today. Do you know why? No-fault car insurance, no-fault marriages, no-fault everything. It's because there is no standard. And the only way you can find fault if there's a standard, because we are afraid to put any kind of standard of right and wrong on anything, everything's no-fault. 
So that's the day and age we find ourselves in today. Now, the challenge Jesus is going to speak into is this. You see, so long as you didn't commit the actual act of adultery, it was okay for you to harbor all kinds of immoral fantasies about your neighbor. You see, so long as you didn't break the law, the letter of the law, I didn't actually have sex with that woman. Well, that sounds familiar. Sorry. I didn't. But that doesn't mean I wouldn't have if I could get away with it. That doesn't mean I didn't want to. And so Jesus was saying, listen, it's not enough not to break the law. It goes deeper than that. It goes much deeper than that. And so now Jesus brings a clarification. That's the command. And now Jesus brings his clarification, and it's this, God's original intent in, in what he meant when he said, you shall not commit adultery. And this is what Jesus said. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What I want you to notice is this. God's original intent was not just to limit acting out on sexual perversions, but he actually takes another step towards actually shaping our hearts. What Jesus says here is you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. And so Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is not merely acting out. It's actually what's going on inside of us. And so love, if you will, True love, committed love, and even sex is a matter of the heart and not just the body. It is all about my heart. Say that with me. It is all about my heart. One more time. It is all about my heart. It's not simply what I do, but it's what I, how I feel, the emotions and what I do with them. A heart that truly loves God is not one that merely obeys the letter of the law, but is evidenced in seeking to honor God in all the areas of our lives, particularly when it comes to sex and sexual activity. So it's not just a heart that truly honors God, but it's a heart that truly loves our neighbor. And I cannot love my neighbor if I'm committing mental adultery with them, if I'm using them for some kind of sick fantasies that I have about them. And it's not just my physical neighbor, my next door neighbor, or the people that I can actually see. But it actually goes beyond that. It's people who are made of paper, people who are digitalized, people who are on celluloid, people who we see on the screen. We can't abuse them because they are made in the image of God for our own mental pleasures and truly love our neighbor. I want you to see what Jesus is saying. There is a vast difference between love and lust. In just a minute, I'll show you how the same passions undergird both. But what we do with those passions matters, matters dearly, matters greatly to God. A heart that truly loves God will not put up with lust. A heart that truly loves my neighbor will not use them in my fantasies. And a heart that truly loves my spouse will keep the fidelity of the marriage covenant by staving off all mental contenders to the health of that relationship. That's what Jesus is saying. That was God's original intent. It was not merely that you don't break the letter of the law, but that on a heart level, you would actually love God 
that on a heart level, you would actually love your neighbor and seek their best and their good, that you would actually love your partner. Marriage counselors like to say that sex starts in the kitchen. I think maybe some of you have heard that. If you're a man, you're a wise man, if you understand that. But Jesus tells us that true love and sex, as well as adultery and pornea, start in our heart. It is all about our heart. Say this with me. It's all about my heart. It is all about my heart. One more time. It is all about my heart. Not merely the act, but what is going on in here. That's where Jesus is heading. This is what he ultimately cares about. Because what goes on in here will ultimately come out here. And if it's true love, it will be glory to the Father and the gladness of others. If it's lust, self-pleasuring, it will be destructive. So it's all about the heart. Let me uh, now kind of focus in on the heart, our heart. There are some important words that Jesus has to say here that I think will help us to understand what he's talking about and even ultimately how to live out what he's saying. So the first thing I want to talk to you about uh, from what Jesus is, is talking about here is this idea of the passion of your heart. The passion of your heart. In the ESV version that, that I've been using for projection purposes, we use as a church, uh, these words, with lustful intent, with lustful intent, we use three English words to describe only one Greek word. And the one Greek word is simply this. It is the word epithumeo. Epithumeo. Let me tell you what this word means, because it's ultimately important in our discussion. Uh, the word epi uh, is, is a prefix, but it's also a, a preposition. Epi means upon or to place something on something. So epi is upon or to place something on something. And the word thumeo, thumeo, as it is there, uh, actually has the idea of something that is hot. In fact, it's the word that we get the word thermal from. Thermal is actually a measurement of heat. So thumeo actually has the idea of something that is really, really hot, something that is is really, really, you can measure the heat. And if you were to take that and put it into our lives, it's talking about passion. It's talking about, about being on fire. It's talking about those things that drive us. Passion is a good thing. We need passion in our lives if we're ever really going to do anything that's meaningful. Because you have to be able to push through the hardships, and passion is often what generates the energies to do that. So we have this thing here. It's called the passion of your heart, epithumeo. Now, let me give you a simple definition. It, it would be something like this. It is that which you would set your heart upon. It is focused, passionate desire. And so it can mean simply to long for something. Or, in a negative way, it can actually have the idea to covet something that belongs to somebody else with a passion. That's not good. Or it can actually be lust, which likewise is to desire something that is outside the boundaries that God has given us. So the word epithumeo is, is a good word. The context determines how it's meant to be understood. 
So let me give you a couple of ways where epithumeo is beautiful. It's exciting, and it's good. And so one of the first ones is actually used by Jesus concerning himself. It says in Luke twenty-two fifteen. it says, And he said to them, I have earnestly desired, there's our word, epithumeo, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So what Jesus is saying is this. I have so longed for this opportunity. I have been looking forward to this for a really, really long time. I have this passionate desire to be with you in this intimate setting where we are going to observe the Passover, the sacrificed lamb that rescued the people of God back in, 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 from Egypt into, into the wilderness because I'm that lamb of God for you. And so that evening, Jesus was epithumeo about it. He was passionate about it. He couldn't wait for that time. So it's a good word. It's a wonderful word. Passion's a good thing. Here's another place. This is Paul's instruction to Timothy concerning leaders in the church. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, that's a leader in the local church, he desires, that's the word, epithumeo, a noble task. So what, what he's basically telling Titus is this. Titus, you want people who want to be in leadership. Titus, you want people who are passionate about leadership because nobody can do this thing for God half-heartedly. If they're not all in and all excited about giving up everything for the sake of this, then you don't want to have them leading your work. They should be epithumeo kind of people. And so passion is a good thing. I just want to make that clear. Passion in the word of God is a powerful driver in our lives. So epithumeo is a wonderful word. Uh, again, we are told in the scriptures that we are to love the Lord, your God, with how much of your heart? Every bit of it. That's passion. That's passion. And we're even told that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's passion. That's passion. So this is good. Epithumeo is passion. A passion for God. A passion to reach our neighbors. A passion to serve them and a passion, I believe, even for our spouses. So epithumeo is something that we should ask God for. We should become more passionate people when it comes to these matters. Uh, in the first service, I thoroughly embarrassed uh, Jerry Small. Jerry Small is a former pastor of a church up in Silver Spring. He's here with us in our congregation. And every day, Jerry, who's in his young mid-80s, prays for passion every day. Oh, God. Make me passionate for you. Oh, God, make me passionate for the things you're passionate about. Oh, God, oh, God, please. I don't think we're passionate enough. I really think we need to be more passionate people. In fact, I love the quote by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Our desires are not, are not too strong, but they're too weak. We, have half -hearted, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex, ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us. We are far too easily pleased. So passion, heat, hot, is a good thing. So long as it's properly contained, so long it is, as it is properly bounded, and when it's within the boundaries of what God wants, this heat can be wonderful in our relationship with God. This passion can be great for our neighbors. This passion can warm my relationship with my wife and keep our family Beautifully, beautifully hot and warm in him. But when this passion becomes unbounded, 
when this passion actually loses containment, I think we all know what happens. The result is usually not good. The same passion that we can use to passionately pursue God, passionately help our neighbors, passionately love our spouses, is the same passion when internalized. When we take that passion and seek to to self-pleasure ourselves with that passion, the result in our lives and in the lives of the people we love can be detrimental. It destroys rather than being a thing of power and beauty. Proverbs puts it this way, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes to his neighbor's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. So I want you to understand, passion is wonderful so long as it's properly directed. So long as it's properly bounded by scripture. So long as it's focused in the right ways. But if it isn't, it can be destructive and it can actually hurt and harm and destroy. And that is what we witness all too often in our culture today. You know, Jesus picked up on this when he gave these words. He said this, it was also said that whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, in context, what he's saying in these two verses are directly connected to the issue of lust and adultery. So this is connected to what he's talking about, that we've just been talking about. So he says, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. This was the cultural understanding. And indeed, you go back to the time of Moses, while God's intent is one man, one woman, in a covenant of marriage for life, there are circumstances, and Jesus actually refers to them in Matthew chapter 19 as the hardness of our hearts. It's when we become willful and selfish. When that happens, Moses permitted He allowed, he never wanted, but he allowed that a certificate of divorce could be produced, and it was largely to protect the woman in the relationship. That if she had this certificate, she had the opportunity to remarry again. And in that culture, that was ultimately important. Without that certificate, she was ostracized and nobody would touch her. So Moses did permit this. Moses did allow this. But the problem became that it was meant to be only for sexual immorality. If that's what broke the union, if that's what caused the problem, then the certificate could be given. But what was going on was people started becoming very cavalier about divorce. They became very, very open-ended about what it could mean. And so we have uh, one branch of, of Judaism that has this interpretation for when you could give the certificate of divorce. It says this, if she spoils your food. That's pretty liberal. My goodness. Uh, Yeah, Uh, here's another one. If he found another fairer than her. This was what they were doing. In Jesus' day, this was a a thoroughgoing interpretation of how you could give a certificate of divorce. It was really very cavalier. If somebody really had a lust for somebody and they didn't like their spouse, they found a simple way to get rid of her to get somebody they wanted. And so Jesus is actually speaking against that. Uh, We actually have another uh, place where it's talked about in the apocryphal book called Ecclesiasticus. This is between the Old and New Testaments. We don't include them in our Bibles because we don't believe that they're accurate. They're spurious, we believe. But 150 years before Christ came, this was a common interpretation. 
if she will not do as you tell her, get rid of her. So leave it to people to find loopholes or to make them where they don't exist, you know? There was a specific reason Moses allowed it, and then it just broadened and broadened and broadened over time to permit virtually anything. And so Jesus is condemning this kind of adultery, which is nothing, uh, this kind of divorce, because it's nothing more than a thinly veiled reason to commit adultery. That's what he's saying here. Your hearts are wrong. It's not the letter of the law. It is your heart that I'm trying to get to. These kinds of passions will destroy you, and that's not what I want for you. Now, there's all kinds of variance and sundry uh, interpretations here. You know, whoever divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality uh, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus is not really giving a full-orbed understanding of adultery. He is connecting this to the reality that, um, that or divorce. He's talking about adultery and, and how that had become rife in the culture, and it seemed to be okay, even for the people of God. So this is talking about the passion of our hearts. We can have great passion, and it can be great good, or we can have misdirected and misguided passion, and it can lead to great harm. In fact, we live in a day and age now where it just seems like the whole culture is on fire. I'm going to show a little video clip of a man escaping from the Fort McMurray fires in Alberta, Canada. How many of you have heard about those fires? This is somebody trying to get out of their own neighborhood as the fires were sweeping in. It's called an escape from hell. And so here is this guy driving down a street. He's probably driven down many times. Notice the houses on the left. He's doing his best to try and get out as the fires are coming in. And as he is making his way down this, this road, everybody else is trying to get out as well. But notice the cinders. They're just falling all around him. I actually had to cut out the audio on this because the language he used is probably not permissible today here. But he felt very threatened. And so he's weaving his way through here, trying to get out of here, as is everybody else. This is us trying to navigate our culture. Our culture's on fire. There is immorality everywhere and permissiveness everywhere. And if you want to live for God, you're, you're trying to follow the taillights of another fall of a believer of Jesus. It's hard to see because it is so rife in our day and in our age. The passion of your heart. But secondly, and, and let, me, let me conclude with this, and I'm glad it, I've got good time for this because... You know, the reality is this. If we're going to be salt and light in a very hypersexual, immoral culture, this is a huge challenge. But this is the challenge Christ calls us to. Because if we can do it in this area, we would be so remarkably different that people are going to say, how do you do that? Why do you do that? Because I love God. Because I want to please Jesus. What? I've never seen such things. I've never heard such things. How do you experience that? Like you're, yeah. So what I, what I want you to understand is this is ultimately important for those who are followers of Jesus. Getting it right here and dealing with it here. So I don't know, just want to talk about the passion of your heart and God wants you passionate, just rightly directed. 
But secondly, I want to talk to you about the passion, the protection, the protection of your heart. Again, we're navigating a very difficult culture. Our culture says everything is okay, even though God says it isn't. And I want to talk to you about how do you guard your heart above all else, or it will ultimately determine the course of your life. Say it with me. It's all about my heart. It's all about my heart. It's all about my heart. It is. It's all about your heart. How do I protect my heart? Well, Jesus gives us some very good understanding here. And this is particularly for men, but more so in our culture today for women as well. Jesus says, number one, you need to watch out for a wandering eye. He says this, but I say to you that everyone who looks, that little word is the Greek word blepo, blepo. It has the idea to longingly look. It has the idea to leer at a woman. It has the idea to continually look at a woman, hence lustful intent. Those who do so have already committed adultery with her in their hearts. Jesus says. You know, um, I can't tell you the number of guys over the years that I've had a chance to talk to about this issue. And, and the, the common response I get back is so spiritual. Yeah, wow. Isn't God's creation beautiful? As though somehow they're praising God as they look up and down women and undress them with their eyes. You know, somehow we can make that sound good. I just want you to know that Jesus said that, no, 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 no that's, that's not good, no. You see, we have no choice over what we see the first time. The first moment your eye catches somebody that is beautiful, in your, your context, beautiful, you see, that's the freebie. If you continue to look, that's condemned. What you need to do in practice is something that Stephen Arterburn in his book, Every Man's Battle, talks about. He says, a a godly man is going to practice and become habitually good at causing his eyes to bounce. Guys, are you listening? Causing his eyes to bounce. So the first look is there. You move your eyes away and pay attention somewhere else. If you look back, that's on you. You see, the first one you had no control over, but the second one you do. And so what Jesus is saying is beware of the way you use your eyes because they will ultimately uh, train your heart. So he's beginning by talking about a wandering eye. Um, I think it was Martin Luther uh, said, you know, I cannot keep the birds from flying over my head, but I can keep them from making a nest in my hair. That's what we're talking about here. You see, I can't prevent people the way they dress. I can't prevent the fact that I may catch a glimpse of them, but I can prevent looking back. I can prevent continuing to look, to leer, to undress, because that, according to Jesus, is what? Adultery. Whoa. Whoa. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, this is the appropriate place and time to start to deal with another issue, and this is the issue of pornography. It is rife in our culture. It is readily available to all people. Uh, It has been a problem and growing problem amongst men, but it is now a growing problem amongst women. One in two uh, two marriages ends in divorce. 
56% of those marriages end because of one of the spouses inappropriately viewing online content. 90% of boys and 70% of girls are exposed to pornography online. 71% of our kids will hide their internet usage from us, their parents. The average boy in America views 50 pornography videos a week. 50 a week. And right now, some of you are trying to figure out if you're average. I know. I know. I have a lot of conversations. I'm a man. I have a lot of conversations. This is an issue particularly for men, but again, as I said, it's a growing issue for a lot of ladies. The issue of pornography is one that is destroying many people's lives, many marriages, and our culture as a whole. In fact, it is having such devastating effects on mental health, relational health, societal health, and Jesus would add our spiritual health, that even secular authorities are now getting involved saying there's a big problem. You know you've crossed a huge boundary, a really obvious boundary, when secular people start saying, oh, we got a problem here. Now, these are not religious people. These are not people who would say the word of God has any merit. But these are people who just say the effects are so obvious in our culture that we need to do something about it. A few years back, David Cameron, ever heard of David Cameron? He is the premier at, um, in England. He actually, back in 2013, he blocked by default all online pornography in the country. You see, they realized that the liberty of freedom of speech had gone too far. And they had just left the door wide open and anybody could walk in. And his statement is this, in the balance between freedom and responsibility, we have neglected our responsibility to our children. And so they had put it incumbent upon every provider of internet in England to block all pornographic sites unless requested by the customer. Which means that in open Wi-Fi, in the culture, as you're walking by, picking up a signal, you would not be able to get pornography that way. He's trying to protect the children within the culture. They realize it's a, it's a growing problem that is ruining the country. And so he's gotten heat from all sorts of people saying, oh my gosh, this is a slippery slope, we're losing freedom of speech. He says, no, we're just not being responsible as parents. And so we need to do something about it. So that's one place where they're starting to get very uh, adamant that something has to be done. Uh, another place that has gotten more concerned and has actually issued a resolution is the state of Utah. Uh, the state of Utah has, has called pornography a public health crisis. And this is what they have put out in 2016 general session. This concurrent resolution by the legislature and the governor of Utah recognizes that pornography is a public health hazard leading to a broad spectrum of individual and public health impacts and societal harms. There are 16 whereases and two resolutions, and the word epidemic of pornography is in a lot of them. So we are actually having a number of states and countries saying, this has gone way too far. This is having huge impacts that nobody saw coming. There is a site, a secular site, that I think has done a fabulous job in, in trying to capture the reality of what's going on. And maybe some of you are familiar with it. If you aren't, you should look it up. Uh, you should go there because it's actually very good. The site is simply this, fightthenewdrug.org. Fightthenewdrug.org. This is not, this is a secular site. They don't have any biblical framework. They don't really have any morals other than the fact that they know pornography is killing love in a lot of people's relationships. 
So they are hard on the internet, hard on Facebook, trying to awaken people to the dangers of this thing called pornography. And so they have put together incredible documentation, incredible facts to try and help steer people towards health. And so on the website, if you go there, you will see this, this arrangement talking about your brain, your relationships, and the world as a whole. They have what they call peer-reviewed research on how pornography affects your brain. Peer-reviewed research on how pornography affects your relationships. And then peer-reviewed research on how pornography affects society as, as a whole. This stuff that they say has nothing to do with the Bible. It has everything to do with documented facts from science. And so if you are to go onto our webpage, gracewaldorf.org, click on messages. In the message portion, and I'll show you in a minute what we've got there, I have all kinds of resources for you to look at, download, click on, and find help. But one of the things is, is their report. They actually have a 33-page synopsis of the 200-page study done by science. So in the 33-page synopsis, here's just a few things that they say about pornography. And again, these people aren't particularly moral. They're just particularly worried. It says this, porn is like a drug. To your brain, porn has the same effects as drugs. Porn hijacks the reward pathway in your brain. Just like drugs, you can build up a tolerance so you need more porn for the same effects. Withdrawal symptoms can occur when you try and walk away. Now, I'm not telling many of you anything new. You've experienced what I'm talking about. And they have put this in, in documentation, peer review. I mean, all the citations are back here. Here's another one. Porn actually changes the wiring of your brain. Watching porn lays down new neuropathways in your brain. The more you use Porn, the stronger the neural connections and the more difficult it is to stop it. This image, I think, kind of captures what they're talking about and is the reason why it is so hard to break the addiction or the cycle. You see, this is a beautiful meadow. And at one point, it was all covered with grass. One day, somebody decided to walk through this, the, the knolls in this meadow by walking through the high grass. And I'm sure it was quite a hard trudge through all that grass. Well, they did it again. And they did it again. And all of a sudden, the grass started not growing. And all of a sudden, the path started to get kind of clay-packed. All of a sudden, it got easier and easier because the path had now been clearly worn by being traveled over repeatedly. This is how pornography works in our lives. The more you travel over the path to porn, the quicker you are to get to that reward uh, desire that, that kicks in the, the uh, dopamine uh, and oxycotton actually, in our hearts and minds. Um, so, so this is the issue. I like what they say here. They say this, that does not mean you can't stop. Let me say that again, because some of you need to hear this. That does not mean you can't stop. You can rebuild those pathways by avoiding pornography and seeking healthier alternatives. I'm going to talk to you in a few minutes about how to do some of that. But one man, a man by the name of Piper, uh, John Piper, said this. Everybody is as disciplined, or everybody is disciplined if the stakes are high enough. He goes on to say this. If you knew that clicking on that porn site would mean instant 
death, or not clicking on it would mean $10,000. Would you click? You see, if you put the stakes up high enough, either negative or positive, all of a sudden, you don't have to because the reward is greater than what you think you're going to get or the consequences are greater than what you think you're going to get. And so, uh, Piper has this statement. So, you can stop. Let's not use the word can't anymore. So, what I want to tell you today is exactly what we sang just a few moments ago. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus to break every chain. And pornography is a chain that has bound too many people for too long. And I know you tried and you've not succeeded, but it can be broken. And as a result of breaking it, every relationship in your life is going to be healthier for it. Your relationship with God, your relationship with the neighbors you're called to reach, and your relationship with your spouse or your would-be spouse someday. This is something that God has the power to ultimately transform in your life. I want you to hear this. Your theology can transform your physiology. It ultimately can. It ultimately can. He goes on to say all sorts of things. Porn is, as a, is an addictive behavior because of the level of neurochemicals released in the reward pathway. A tolerance to porn or built, uh, to, a tolerance can be built to porn so that you end up needing more and more extreme forms. You've noticed this in your own life. You see, drugs are what they are. You just need more and more of the same drug. But porn is an arousal addiction. You not only need more, you need more of a different kind to get the same reward that you got early on in your path down that way. I'm trying to speak to you very honestly. I'm, I'm very aware, having had too many conversations about this issue and, and knowing my own heart, that this is a problem guys face particularly. I just want to say this, uh, one more thing off their website. And again, I highly recommend it. And if you go to our website, I have a link there to click on. Real love means real people. Porn makes real relationships more difficult and less satisfying. Porn can make you cynical about real love. That's what it does. This is a secular group, and yet they have realized the, the awful, awful consequences that come upon those who get caught up in this way. So, Jesus said... Watch out for your wandering eye. Do not look. Do not continue to leer. Do not continue to soak this in and play fantasies in your mind. Well, how, Jesus? How do I deal with this in my life? Well, quite frankly, you need to be willing to take some very drastic steps. Sin wants you to play with it. And sin wants to win in your life. And it's only when you get serious about sin and actually attack it that you will ultimately find victory over it. So Jesus gives some very, very strong statements here. If your right eye causes you to sin, what? And throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, what? And throw it away. What? Now, he's obviously being figurative here, okay? Uh, there's actually a guy called Origen in the life of the church who actually did this to himself. Now, can I just say to you, I know people who, have, who are blind, and you can have no limbs, and you can be as lustful as anybody. It's about my heart, 
say that. It's about my heart. It's not about gouging out your eyeball and cutting off your hands. But what he's talking about is taking drastic steps to limit temptation in your life. Whatever there may be in your life that's hindering your relationship with God, whether it's an action, a practice, or a relationship, he is saying, do whatever it takes to get rid of it. As you would cut cancer out of your life, get rid of it. As you would cut off a piece of your body because of gangrene, get rid of it. He is saying it takes drastic steps in order to deal with this. And so, how many people here have a phone? For far too many people, their phone has become a pathway in which porn has come into their life. So what's Jesus saying we do with our phones? What? No way! Okay, uh, if you don't want to get rid of your phone, which for many of us would be like cutting off our right hand or gouging out our eyeball, right? Then you need to get somebody to help you filter your phone. And you need accountability tied to that. That's drastic. What are you talking about here, Pastor Bill? I'm talking about drastic stuff. Because if we continue to play with it, it will win. We don't sin manage in our lives. We kill sin. We die to sin. And so our phones are a big thing. TVs, uh, you know, we all get those extra packages. Every time Verizon calls me, come on, I'll give, you, I'll give you the whole movies package if you'll just stay with us. They're losing people right, left, and center. They'll give you anything these days. Yeah, and I set the, the uh, rating to any, everything R and over is, is not, you can't watch it on my television set. You know, a man by the name of Chuck Swindoll, a wonderful preacher of the Word of God, said back in the day, he says, do you know that most homes have a 27-inch sewer line running right into their house? It's called the TV. Today we have 75-inch HD 4K sewer lines running right into our house. This is one of those things we need to deal with. We need to do something about this because it is sucking the life out of us. And the very passions God wants us to have for him, for those who are lost, and for our spouse, Satan is stealing down this pathway of lust. We need to do something about this. I want to give you a couple of resources that I hope can help you. This is our website, Grace Church Waldorf. Uh, it is found at gracewaldorf.org. Uh, Grace uh, on our messages page, uh, after this morning, I will upload today's message. The other ones are there as well. But if you go down the page just a little bit, you're going to find some resources for dealing with lust. Let me just speak to these, and then we'll be done. We have several videos. One is John Piper. It's only about 14, 15 minutes long. But John Piper is talking about lust versus self-control. And he's speaking to believers. And he's challenging them that they can indeed experience self-control. Then Mark Driscoll, who has recently come back into ministry life, has a video on there, 15 minutes long, and he's answering the question, help, I'm addicted to porn, what do I do? I want to encourage you to go there, watch that, hear what he has to say, it'll help you. Then I threw this in just because I thought it would be helpful, particularly for parents. Philip Zimbardo, it is a TED Talk, five minutes long. He is a secular psychologist, and he's, he's a little odd, but that's okay. But what he has to say there you as a parent need to hear, particularly if you have boys. Please watch that. Please think carefully about that because it will help you to know better how to parent and, and effectively parent. Then there are some websites further down with documents. Fightthenewdrug.org. Uh, everything that I just uh, showed you in that document as well as the 200-page uh, uh, copious document, I have links there with PDFs. 
I highly recommend you go there, read it, and uh, digest it so you can have a full appreciation for what it's doing. Then Coventry, or CovenantEyes.com, .com, blah. Yes, that would be really bad. CoventryEyes.com uh, is an internet filtering service, and they also have some wonderful documents. I've included them here on parenting and how to talk to your children about the problem of pornography. So dads, moms, take advantage of that. This is a remarkable site. It's called X3 Pure, 30 Days to Purity. If you click on this link, it will take you to a place where they will help you walk through online and deal online with the issue of pornography, and it's designed to help to get you to purity. You will actually have 10 people as accountability partners walking through those 30 days. They will help to break the cycle. So I want to encourage you, to, if you're in a cycle that you cannot break, check that out. Then also locally, we have CelebrateRecovery.com. If you click on that, it will take you to, to some the local options. Uh, locally, we're fortunate to have some really good Christian counselors, LifeChristianCounseling.com. If you click on that, they will take you to, they have a place in Waldorf as well as La Plata and elsewhere. If you really need help and your marriage really needs help, please click on this. And then this SAA recovery group is sex, um, uh, SexAddictionAnonymous.com. Uh, recovery.org. Uh, they actually have two group meetings. They're like AA meetings. They're not particularly religious, but they use the 12-step recovery program. They meet next door twice a week, two different programs. And so there are a bunch of people getting together, talking about the need for accountability. I just want to say, as we're getting ready to, to close, avail yourself of these resources if this is an issue in your life. Because the culture has bought fully into liberation and everything is okay. Now they're actually feeling the effects of it. Help us not to follow them. Help us to be different than that. And may the power of Christ in the indwelling Holy Spirit enable us to get victory in this part of our lives. Epithumeo. Epithumeo, passionate, heat, hot. Can you imagine what your relationship with God would look like if you could properly focus your passions at him? Can you imagine what your relationship with your neighbors would be like if you could actually focus your passion towards their need of Jesus and not in lustfully desiring them? Can you imagine what your relationship with your spouse would look like if you could properly focus that passion, that heat, that desire? You know, it would look a little bit like this. Come on. Ah. A passionate relationship with Jesus Christ that only gets hotter and more powerful and his love and his reality and his presence is more real in your life than ever. By focusing our passions towards the lost in their needs rather than our self-pleasuring, we can have such an impact in people's lives. And imagine how hot your relationship would be if you could focus this kind of heat towards one another as husband and wife and remove all the false stuff from your relationship. Hubba, hubba. <laughs> Let's pray. Jesus, these are hard words. They are very hard words. 
But I just pray that through the work of your Holy Spirit that you would speak into our lives and encourage us that there can be victory in this. And Lord, I know there are guys sitting here right now, maybe a few ladies as well, who are really struggling in this area of their lives. They're embarrassed, they've tried and not succeeded. I pray as they renounce this as not right before you and as they seek help and accountability that you would bless them and that they would experience the full beauty of what it means to have that grassy knoll covered with grass again and to be able to have a healthy, healthy pathway of proper passion. Oh God, help, help, I pray, in Jesus' name. And the people of God said...